everyone. Welcome back to But What Will People Say? I'm your host, Disha Mazeppa, and this is a South Asian interracial relationship and lifestyle podcast. Welcome back for another episode. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving with your friends, family, whoever you celebrated with. I know I did. I took a little trip to visit some family we haven't seen since essentially since Mike and I got married. And so it was really nice to spend some quality time with everybody and also get take a real break. I did not have anything with me. So that meant I didn't touch anything podcast or Etsy or ornament related for the whole like five days we were gone. And I don't think that's ever happened because all the things I do live in the same house as I do. So I really don't think I ever go a day without touching something related to those things. And as much as I really enjoy doing it and it never feels like work, it was nice to have you know, it physically just taken away from me. And so I could actually just spend some time with the people that we love spending time with. And so that was really nice. Um, A little bit of a trigger warning for this week's episode. It is very heavy pregnancy related. We talk about surrogacy and adoption and infertility and all that stuff. So um, if that's not something you're comfortable with, this is just a heads up. But otherwise, I really, really enjoyed this episode. Um, Priya, her partner is white. And we talk about just how both cultures see surrogacy and dealing with, you know, trying to have a baby and what happens if you can't and just like the social dynamic of that um, and lots and lots of other things related to it. So it's a really great episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. Let's get to it. everybody. We are here with Priya, and she's going to tell us a little bit about who she is. Hi, Priya. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about who you are. So um, I am a 41-year-old South Asian female. I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and um, my parents are still local to that area. Um, but I have kind of moved all over sort of the Northeastern seaboard for various things. Um, I graduated college um, from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh and went on to do sort of investment banking work because I thought that's what you did. And I really didn't have an idea of what I wanted to do. Um, My father is a family doctor and really wanted me to go into um, medicine. But for a long time, I really uh, did not want to have anything to do with it. So I went into business and um, decided that uh, investment banking was not for me. It was actually right after 9-11. Uh, and the banking world uh, was very different. You know, we didn't have the Me Too movement. Uh, a lot of things were okay to sort of do with women um, that have been okay for years. And still people feel, men feel like it's okay. But I was um, inappropriately touched multiple times, sexually harassed, um, and I just realized that that was not the world for me at all. Um, and so, kind of had this, you know, mid twenties uh, <laughs> sort of breakdown in terms of, you know, what am I doing here? Why did I go to school? What am I doing in, in banking? And decided that I was going to change course and go into some form of psychology or medicine or doing something to help people. And uh, one thing led to another, and I ended up going into medicine. Um, 
And I was a bit of a late bloomer. I started medical school at 28 and uh, completed uh, medical school in Philadelphia, finished my family medicine training in Philadelphia as well, and then decided that um, I was going to do a fellowship in academic medicine and really in faculty development and, and go on to teach. But my my dreams were a little bit a setback because in 2016, I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And I was very sick at the time that I was diagnosed. It had been going on for months and I had not realized it. But looking back, I think, oh my gosh, I should have seen a doctor. But as a trainee, you know, that was the last thing on my mind was putting myself first. And so I spent a year in 2016 into 2017 uh, undergoing chemo, uh, full body radiation, ultimately needed a bone marrow transplant. Um, And when this happened, I was four months shy of graduating residency. So all my plans got put on hold. So I came back in 2017, uh, almost a year to the day, and I very slowly ramped myself back up, uh, completed my medical residency, and then decided to move to Boston. Uh, where I was able to keep a spot for myself in that fellowship that I had wanted to do. Uh, Completed my fellowship um, in 2019 and then went on to uh, help that medical school, which was Tufts Medical School, uh, launch a new residency in family medicine in the state of New Hampshire. Um, And so I became the associate program director for that and have continued to work on that uh, as as my current role um, but we'll likely be sort of leaving shortly and moving on to just taking a bit of a sabbatical to take care of myself um, and move back towards my family, which is all based in Pennsylvania. My two brothers who live there, my family, my parents live there. And as I get closer to wanting a family of my own, I, I really want a support group that I didn't have growing up. And I want my children to have that. And so we've decided to move towards um, home so that our family my family specifically can be engaged and involved um, in helping us raise kids when we get to that point. I really like that you bring up that you're a bit of a late bloomer and you kind of went back and forth on what you wanted because I think nowadays we've worked really hard to kind of make that more mainstream and not expect an 18-year-old to make life decisions Yeah, because I'm 28 years old now and I'm figuring out my life Mm -hmm. and I don't think there's hopefully we're moving past this idea that like you have to have it all figured out by a certain age. Oh yeah. Um, Cause I think every millennial has had like a quarter life crisis and is like reevaluating their whole existence at this point. Um, But I appreciate that you were able to go back and kind of change your mind and start over in even now, like deciding that like you want to take a sabbatical and take a pause and maybe not follow this like, predetermined path of like working forever (laughs) or like doing the same thing forever. Yeah. Well, my, you know, my experience with cancer also really highlighted this really toxic culture that we've built, you know, in America. And I use America specifically because in other countries, I find that there are other forms and more, um, more support for people who want to take time off or live a non-traditional life. I mean, we are one of the poorest places in terms of maternity leave, supporting paternity leave, work-life balance. I mean, we're, we're terrible in this, in this country in that, whereas other countries, you know, minimum give 
multiple months off to have families or to to pursue that. Um, and I just feel like life is too short. I mean, I had no genetic predisposition to have cancer. I have no idea where it came from. Uh, and I've never been able to, as a scientist and as a physician, I just, I wanted an answer. Like what happened in my body? What mutation was there that caused this? But I, I'll never know. And I think that life is just, it's so fragile and it's so unpredictable that, you know, I've, I'm very fortunate that I'm able to, I've saved a lot of money. I have my husband's support and I'm going to take some time for myself and just reset and go back when I'm ready. Yeah. Do you think having cancer and knowing that, God forbid, one day it might come back, that it has almost forced you to make decisions for your life now instead of waiting like, oh, one day we'll do this. Like one day we'll make this decision or take this pause. Like it's more like a sense living life with a sense of urgency. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, part of the reason that I, I left my position was that there were effects occurring at my on my health. And I was burning out like many medical staff and physicians and, you know, PAs and NPs have, have happened to them. And I just don't feel like that's a way to live. And I realize that I, I say that with a lot of privilege, but I feel like I need to do what's best for myself and my family and taking care of myself comes first because there is that risk. I, I underwent a lot of procedures and radiation in which I was told that there is a likelihood that I could have a secondary cancer someday because of the amount of radiation I received. Um, and so I don't, I don't know what that means for my future. I don't, I already know that I can't have children from that. And so I want to give myself every opportunity to stay healthy. And when I saw myself sort of reverting towards unhealthy habits and being mentally just unwell, I, I wanted to stop that as soon as I could. Yeah. And hopefully more people are noticing that because I'm also a product of medical burnout. Hello. Nice to meet you. <laughs> um, going back to, you know, living life with a sense of urgency and also being told that you might not have a children or you wouldn't be able to have children. Um, one of the topics we had talked about bringing up today was surrogacy and adoption. And you mentioned starting a family soon. So tell us about that. Yeah. So I, I really battled very hard how I wanted to go about this. I, because of my bone marrow transplant, I am not able to carry children, even if I could get pregnant and I lost my fertility through cancer treatment. So that was, you know, one of the first things I had to come to peace with because I, that's not how I planned out my life. You know, I didn't, I wasn't someone who was like, I'm definitely going to be a mom someday. But with time and, and meeting the right person, I decided that that was something I wanted to incorporate into my life. And it was just very um, hurtful and really hard for me to, to grasp this concept of, well, you only have these choices. And so we decided to look into both adoption and surrogacy. And I will admit, for a long time, I had a lot of hangups about adoption. And, and it wasn't sort of the, you know, what are people going to say thing. It was more my own personal history with patients who were children of adoption, who had multiple emotional and physical health issues that got me very scared. And I, I say that with a little bit of shame around it, because I feel like these kids would be lucky to have 
you know, anybody adopt them? And, you know, what, why am I having these hangups about it? But I did. And I was worried that I didn't have control over the person that who was birthing that child. I didn't have control over the idea of their medical health issues or what kinds of issues they may have going forward. And I realized, albeit a little bit later, um, after we had made the decision to go through surrogacy, that a lot of those ideas were really rooted in old old tales and old things that really weren't true anymore. At one time, they, they were true. But as I talked to people who had gone through the adoption process, I realized that I probably had a lot more control and a lot more um, that my ideas were really outdated. Um, regardless, we, we decided to go with surrogacy. Um, and we are in the process right now. Uh, we decided this about probably before we even got married. We, we got married in June of 2020. Um, in a small 10-person wedding in our living room, a um, little micro-COVID wedding. Um, but we really wanted to have the opportunity to be a part of a pregnancy and to have my husband be a part of this child biologically. And so what we didn't realize at the time was that, you know, there's probably more lack of control this route than than we ever expected. And for someone like me, who's a physician, who everything is about controlling my patient's health and trying to to have control around the science and what I what I tell and share with my patients, really went out the window. So the surrogacy process is not only very expensive, but it is also a lot of waiting um, and a lot of giving up control because now there's going to be someone who is going to carry your child and feed their body with whatever they think is important. And you're going to have to put complete trust in this other person that you have this relationship with for nine months or longer as you get to know them and, and choose them and then have them go through all the things they have to go through. And, and you have to be okay with that. And you also have to be okay with the idea that your state may not be legal for surrogacy. You may have to be in New Hampshire and have a surrogate in Pennsylvania or Ohio where surrogacy is legal. Not every state has those, uh, not every state has the ability to, to provide surrogates. So I may not be able to have a surrogate near me. So I may be having Zoom calls several times a week and just trusting that whatever she decides to eat or whatever medicine she needs to take, that's okay. Um, and so it's very, uh, it's, it's, it's something that I am, it's a new challenge that I am facing. And I'm also facing this idea that, you know, that child is going to be my, biologically is going to have my husband's genes, but not mine. We also went through and found an anonymous donor. Um, and I, at this point in time, cannot make contact with that donor. I know her full health history. I know what she looks like, um, but that's about it. You know, I don't know much else about her. I can't make contact with her. And she gave us such a gift um, in that we were able to create, you know, eight healthy embryos um, from her donation. Uh, but that in itself was its own challenge. You know, finding a South Asian donor is a challenge. You know, we don't, in our culture, this is not something we promote. Um, it is not something, even finding a South Asian surrogate, you know, we looked into the idea of finding someone in India among cousins and 
you know, when my dad would speak to them, they were like, no, thank you. You know, that is not something our young girls do. And um, even when you become a surrogate, there are a lot of, you know, rules and regulations that are dictated by the FDA, as well as by my reproductive endocrinologist, that really did not match with a South Asian mentality. And so the donor we found was actually a mixed donor. She was, she is half South Asian, half Italian. And then my husband has some European roots. And so our child is really only going to be a third South Asian, um, a third Italian, and then a third of this mix of European roots. And so even though I'm in a, um, in, uh, a uh, mixed marriage, this child is still not a product of exactly who I am as a South Asian woman. She is part, you know, that the child will be part of that product. But I think those are some very complicated feelings that I just wasn't ready to face or didn't even know I was going to face those things. Yeah, that sounds like there's so much there in everything that you just said, because you know, for so many of us, I know so many people who tune into the show are so young. And so they haven't really faced having kids or surrogacy or adoption. But there is a certain amount of expectation just as women that we carry of like, we have to pass on our culture, we have to push the brownness on our kids, no matter what they look like. Mm -hmm. Right? Because like, my partner is also white. And we don't know what our kids will look like. And if they look mostly like him, how are we going to pass on culture? And, you know, it feels so superficial. It almost feels a little bigoted to even say that, like, if my kid doesn't look brown enough, is anyone, will they even qualify as brown? Because as someone like me, who's always felt like they weren't brown enough, even though I was born in India, my first language was Gujarati. I'm 100% Indian, but I'm pretty pale skinned. And my cousins are even lighter than I am. Mm-hmm. And so just through my own experience, feeling like I wasn't brown enough to then like kind of now we're wondering about like these kids, like we're going to have this child and now what happens? Um, but there are so many ways to like pass on culture. And luckily we live in a world where that's becoming more and more accessible. Um, but what are some of the stigmas that you felt that like South Asians still hold about surrogacy and adoption? Well, I think, you know, first of all, and I experienced this actually when I was dating. So um, I'll just take a step back. When I was dating, I was always open to the idea of whoever was the right person. It it didn't have to be a South Asian. It didn't have to be, you know, uh, a Gujarati or a Punjabi or anything like that. It was just whoever was the right person. And so I, I dated of all cultures and I was flat out told on the, you know, I tried telling people about my history on my first date. I tried telling them on the third date. And no matter what I did, I I felt like I was losing, especially with um, South Asian men. And that they would say to me, well, if you can't have a child, then how am I essentially without saying it in so many words, how am I going to pass on my, you know, my name and my, you know, my family name. And my mom would, would go through some of the more traditional routes of reaching out to people and and they would say flat out that you know if your daughter can't produce a child like that's that's not cool for us like we, we're not on that and flat out rejected me um and it really that was very hurtful to say that one 
I mean, how do you know you can have children? How do you know that your sperm is not dysfunctional in some way? You know, how do you know that you're not the person that's going to be affecting this and that we're not going to be able to do even surrogacy and create an embryo? And so I just found it to be not only sort of misogynistic and sexist, but I found it to be incredibly hurtful that we're in a position in this day and age where young men, not and, and their moms, but young men who are making decisions on their own are saying, nope, I'm sorry, this is not, you know, this, bio, this biological piece is really important to me. And if you can't engage in that, then I, I can't be with you. And so I think for me, just one, being an older woman who was very ambitious and really put her career first, and then getting married later in life. I, I married my husband at 39. Um, and that it, those two things in itself really put up some bars from South Asian men. And I really decided I was not going to go on those, um, you know, Shadi and Bharath matrimonial and all of those. I wasn't going to do that anymore. And I was just going to go and find someone the way I found them, whether it was online or meeting naturally, um, because that was too hurtful. And I didn't want to be a part of someone who felt that way about me. Yeah, that I can imagine is really tough. And it almost from like the perspective of this show where so much of it comes down to race and like understanding that your partner isn't brown, it feels so trivial because ultimately like it doesn't like where that person is from doesn't matter because for you, the biggest hurdle was more, can they work around the fact that like, we're going to have some trouble having kids Mm -hmm. and it might be non-traditional and it's not going to be your typical way of having a child. And that can be really hard. I can only imagine, but how did you, I guess for women who are in your position, who maybe already know that, either they're going to have a hard time or maybe they aren't able to, to navigate that conversation with someone when they're dating. I think for me, what I learned was to be straightforward and upfront because I guess this is a topic that really triggers a lot of people. And, and I do want to say that there were men of other cultures too, that, that said very similar things to me. Um, but it did predominantly come from South Asian men. Um, but I, I think you ha- I was very straightforward with my husband on the first date. I was done sort of hiding it. I, I knew I couldn't win. And so I was not going to waste my time with somebody who needed to um, really outright reject me. If, if that's something that you come to, you know, over time and you decide that this is not for you, that's okay. But I don't have that time to wait and potentially get hurt while you sort of figure this out. So you, for me, it became very black and white. You either accept it and you accept me as a person or you don't. And my husband was very open about like, okay, next, what what else have you got? You know, and he was just very okay with that. And I think, unfortunately, it's because of his history in, you know, his past and sort of being hurt and, and having a failed relationship. And I think that gave him the empathy to be like, you know what, I'm, I am not, perfect. I come with my own baggage. And so, you know, he was just very, just non-judgmental about like, let's, let's just, we're all equals here, right? That's your hurdle. Here's my hurdle. And told me about what his hurdle was. And, and we accepted each other for that and moved forward. And it was really wonderful, but it just, it became too hard. And I wasn't going to engage in that. I was going to be upfront with you from the first time. 
And if you didn't like it, that was okay, but I'm not going to waste my time, you know, sort of feeling sorry for myself and um, waste your time while you figure out whether or not this is okay. You know, if I was 22, maybe I, you know, but at 37, 38, when I met my husband, you know, I was ready to settle down and I was ready to move forward with my life. And I, I just wasn't going to put up with anything short of, I accept this or I don't. And I'm not going to judge you if you don't, but I am going to move on then. I'm not going to waste my time or yours. Yeah. Solid boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where sometimes we always talk about how hard dating is, especially on this show. And it's like, as we get older, like you said, like when you're 22, you're willing to put up with some stuff like, oh, you can figure it out. Like, I don't really know what I want. But like the older you get, it almost becomes harder for women to date at because we know what we want. And mm-hmm. because we have such little patience for, quite frankly, putting up with guys who don't know what they want or aren't sure about us or willing to accept us and all of our hurdles, like you said, and all the things that come with being with us. Yeah. I, and that includes, you know, sort of the cultural aspect of it, too. Right. So, you know, not just because I, I married a Caucasian man doesn't mean that if I had married another Punjabi guy that he would be OK with the craziness of my family. You know, it just, you know, culture culture is a thing too. And family dynamics are a thing. And so you want some, in my mind, you want someone that really is willing to take you in as a whole, not just the, the, you know, the little things here and there, but, you know, I don't think I really understood this idea that my mom implanted in me that, you know, when you get married, you you join two families. And while I have some, you know, I don't agree with that in its entirety at a hundred percent, there is some relevance to that. And so I needed someone who understood that I was older. I come with like a crazy Punjabi family that's really loud and in your face and sort of tells you straight up how it is. Um, I don't think, you know, I think that you have to look at yourself as a whole and be ruthlessly honest with who you are. And what is that partner going to accept, you know, when they marry you? They, They do marry a little bit of your family, too, because some of our good and bad habits come from those foundations that we had as children in our families and whether they were toxic or non-toxic, they, they do sort of get embedded in us. Um, and so picking the right person and knowing what you want and what you're bringing to the table, I think is this very uh, empowering thing that as women, I think we learn very late or we don't learn at all because we're so looking at, I think a lot of women unfortunately fall into the role of people pleasing and making sure that everybody's happy before they are. Um, And that was something that, again, my cancer journey was like, no, you know, fuck that. (laughs) I am I am looking out for myself first. Yeah, for sure. And I I think to an extent, at least for South Asian women, it comes really with time, because like you said, we're not raised with that. We're not raised to put our needs first or our wants being validated or our expectations being, you know, allowed. And as we get older and then we're like, no, this is this is not going to work. <laughs> yeah. And just hopefully coming to terms with we're just going to move on and we're not going to settle or feel like we're running out of time somehow or feeling like we're on some sort of like checklist that needs to be completed by these dates or years. But that's so hard, right? So you've got societal pressure that puts that on you. You know, like if you if when you talk to people 
no matter what culture you come from about marrying later or having kids later, what's the first thing people say? Oh, well, you know, you got to think about your biological clock and, you know, eggs and all of that. I mean, that's the first thing that comes out of people's mouths. So you've got that societal pressure. And then you've got the pressure coming from, you know, in, in most AC households, that pressure as well. Like, oh, you got to get married, you know, your time. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? How are you going to have kids? You know, I grew up in a house where my mom, you know, got married at 24. She was well-educated, had a master's and everything. But that was, you know, in 1970s, that was like, whoa, you are getting married at 24. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, I just made it a priority. I did not want any of that. I wanted to go become something of myself. But the problem is, is that, yes, there's some biology to this, but we haven't normalized this idea of even encouraging women to freeze eggs or to talk about fertility early on. We don't talk about those things at all. Instead, what we do is we say, get married early, have your kids, and then do whatever you want. When you go to your husband's house, you can do whatever you want. You know, and and that is just so toxic and it's not healthy at all. And so we're not having these conversations that are so important to have. Yeah. I'm for sure. I've heard it. I've seen it, lived it, you know, and for sometimes I do, I resent my family for it because mm-hmm. I didn't figure out what I want to do with my life until a little bit later. And now I have this like degree that just kind of like sits there that I don't really do anything with. And feeling like my family said, they're like, once you get married, you could do whatever you want. Right. And Yes, I love my husband to death. He is the world's most supportive person. He lets me be who I want to be and do all this other stuff that isn't traditional. But sometimes I'm like, you know, I never got to live by myself and maybe figure that out. You know, I mm-hmm. moved out. I had roommates and then I lived with him. But like, I sometimes I'm like, I wish I could just live by myself. I love my husband. I would yeah. never leave him. But sometimes I'm like, I wish I could just get like a month, you know, a month. There's so much growth that happens when you live by yourself. And as a woman too, you know, forget Desi or non-Desi, but it is important in the Desi culture because we're not, we're not promoted, you know, it's not encouraged at all to do that, you know? And so, but I, I was fortunate that my parents, I mean, I kind of forced them into it. I just kind of made decisions, but you know, I, I did live on my own and and there's so much growth and learning. And I think that we also, I think coupling up or always having somebody is this really unfortunate. Yes. And it's just something that I, I wish that, you know, I made a lot of mistakes thinking in my twenties and thirties that I needed to be with somebody, you know, even though I was living by myself, I was still, I was learning a lot of things, but I was also kind of lonely in that I felt like I always had to be with somebody. But had I used that time in a better way or more wisely, I think I, I think I could have learned even more and not had this idea that, oh, I need to have a boyfriend or I need to be coupled up with somebody. Yeah. Um, and realizing like- we can do it, right? I think for me, that was a big thing is like now looking at my life, I'm like, Wait, I could have lived by myself because like I for so long just believed what my parents said about like, you can't do it. You need someone to take care of you. You need someone to take care of you. You're a girl. You can't live on your own. You know, so I always had roommates and stuff. And now looking back, I'm like, I could have done it. I could have figured out like how I want to like figure out finances or figure out how I want to decorate my place or whatever the hell, like make those decisions. And I a little part of me does like resent my family for that like feeling like that was taken away 
because like you know hindsight 2020 right but like sure. yeah a lot of that <laughs> but getting back on track here um like you said your husband is caucasian how how does his family feel about surrogacy and adoption because like you said it's not just like a south asian thing lots of mm-hmm. people have opinions on it yeah they've actually been very um very supportive and uh they they really, they're very hands-off, um, very different from my family. And they very much have that sort of Western idea of, you know, go live your life, whatever decisions you make. We as parents have already instilled a foundation in you. We just hope you make good decisions. And so they've actually been very supportive. We've kept them in the loop with everything. They're very excited uh, because it would be, it would be the first grandchild in the family. Um, so they have really had no qualms about it at all. Amazing. And what about your family? Have they been supportive? Have they, you know, broken past their own maybe ideas of what pregnancy can look like? Yeah, I think they've had a lot of growing. I think my mom, I will say, is a, is a, a lot more traditional in a lot of ways than my father is. And uh, she really did not like the idea at the, you know, first. And I think if you asked her, I, I still think she would feel much more comfortable with adoption. Um, she feels like, at least in her mind, that's something that's recognizable. That's something that has done. That is something that she has seen in people and they do that. And she feels like it's easier in that, you know, you, you just go and you, she grew up in a time where people would go to an orphanage and they would pick a baby and they would go home. And she still has some of those ideas of that's how it is in India. But India itself has clamped down on a lot of uh, rules and regulations to prevent child trafficking. And so, you know, you can't use surrogates in India anymore. There were people who were using surrogates. I had a friend who used a surrogate from Nepal. um, And you can't do that anymore, um, especially if you are a uh, citizen outside of, of India. Um, it is not easy to do international adoption anymore. And the other piece that I think my mom didn't realize was that she wanted an Indian child. Even when we were going through our donors, she wanted a South Asian woman. And honestly, it was so hard to find. You could not find them. And so irony, right? They don't want a surrogate, but then when they need one, they want, they want a brown surrogate. Right, right. Um, and so it's just really hard to, um, to live up to those ideals that are not really realistic anymore from what she grew up with. And so, you know, we really wanted to, um, to do the best that we could. It was important to us for our child to have certain features that replicated kind of what their mom would look like. But after that, you know, for us, it was really okay to have somebody who had South Asian features, but was not fully South Asian. Whereas for her, that was just very hard to digest. So she's had a really hard time digesting this whole thing. She and my father also feel like, well, why would you get a surrogate that's based out of a state that isn't yours? And I had to really do a lot of education about how there are legal, you know, legal rules. There are, there's just this idea that surrogacy while becoming increasingly popular is not the number one way that people plan to have children. Um, and so it's not that simple to find a surrogate in general, let alone a surrogate that would be South Asian or a surrogate that would be my neighbor. You know, my parents even went as far as to say, well, I think you should, for the nine months that she is there, you should go live there. And you should, yeah. And and these are things that are just not realistic. And, 
you know, they wanted to be involved in being able to talk to the surrogate. And when you fill out your form for what you want in a surrogate, I did have to write there that, you know, my parents will never have your phone number or a direct way to contact you. But if I get them on the phone and they want to talk to you and see how you're doing, is that okay? Like you have to write out all these really specific things in order to find the right surrogate. But I just know my parents are going to be heavily involved and I'm going to set boundaries for that. But your average person probably would, would never put that in a surrogacy profile or in what they call an intended per, intended parent profile as what they're looking for in a surrogate is having my entire family sort of involved in this. Whereas my husband's family is like, just let us know how things are going. You know, it's <laughs> Keep us totally, posted. Yeah, very different dynamic. And so there's been a lot of um, old school ways of thinking that I've had to educate and break down in, in both of them, despite my, my father being a physician and my mom having her background in psychology. You know, it's very interesting how a lot of that objectivity goes out the door when it's your child <laughs> and, yeah. and when you're doing things with your family. Do they provide, I guess, like family support services when you're going through this? I imagine they probably provide it for the parents. But mm-hmm. Do they kind of offer it for like more of the like, like you said, the village? You know, I, I don't know, actually. Um, I don't think so. I think this is really something that, you know, you dictate on your terms and that person is there to help you. She is to be very um, pragmatic about it. She is a means to your end goal. And, and that's just, that's kind of how it is. But I don't think there's a lot of support provided. In fact, the surrogacy agencies provide more support to the surrogate than they do to the intended parents. Um, But through my reproductive endocrinologist, I am required to speak to my social worker every six months. And so that will become my support system. And I can speak to her more frequently but I have to speak to her twice a year and fill her in on how things are going. So my support system is coming through my husband and the social worker that I work with through my reproductive endocrinologist and then through my family who has, has really kind of begun to get on board with this. You know, we made that decision. We said, this is the way that we are going to go and we're going to see how it works out. Amazing. What was the process been like? What has been this whole process, this journey been like for you guys? So um, it's been hard, I will say. I think it's been harder for me than my husband. My husband is very pragmatic. He says, you know what, we have a problem. This is part of the solution. And that's what we're going to do. And I am very emotionally involved because for me, one, like I mentioned before, it took time to come to terms with the fact that this child is not biologically mine. And I went through a lot of feelings of resentment and hurt and pain where I felt like, am I going to bond with this child? Am I really, you know, is that all this is bonding just biological? Like when you start breastfeeding, there's all these things I'm not going to be able to do to traditionally bond with that child in its first few months or moments of life. And what does that mean for me as a mom? Am I, am I going to have the same feelings? And then when you're not actively, so right now, we're still waiting for a surrogate applicant to come forward. We've been waiting for almost a year now to get the right surrogate, and that too in the middle of a pandemic. And um, this process takes time. You know, Nobody promises you that in six months, we're going to have a surrogate for you. We, we chose an agency that we feel very comfortable with that has been doing this for 
you know, more than 20 years and we are trusting the process, but in that comes a lot of emotion. You, you don't have an attachment to the process, you know, even through when our donor was coming into Boston, going to our repro and going through the donation phase, you know, I wasn't allowed to meet her. I did not know. I knew a time frame of when she was in town, but that was it. And that was, you know, that was all I knew. And then one day I got a phone call that said, okay, you know, the donation has happened. We've gotten, you know, 20 eggs. And from those 20 eggs, 13 fertilized, and now we're going to do, you know, and it's, it's just a scientific process. And so there's no attachment there. And so I don't even feel like we're going on this family planning journey outside of this is when this payment is due. This is when this is going to happen. And so it's very detached. And it's not what I imagined at all and how I was yeah. going to build my family. And in talking to people who have gone down this road, I heard that once once the baby, you know, first of all, once the embryo is implanted and you're actually going through the surrogacy process, that's the first time it becomes very real. And there is a sort of emotional attachment that forms, but it's really when the baby is born. And, you know, there is a whole legal choreography that has to happen for us to even be in the hospital. We have to have an attorney that signs away the rights of the surrogate. We have to have a document that signs that we are the parents on the birth certificate. We have to get permission from the hospital to spend a night in the hospital and take that baby outside the hospital walls legally. So there's all this choreography going wrong. And then my emotions are in this like little bubble that sits like over here. On the side. Yeah. And how do I, how do I deal with that? It, you know, I don't know how else to deal with it outside of having a great relationship with my husband, good communication skills with him and therapy <laughs> and really just breaking this down with my therapist and saying, okay, how do I process this? Yeah. Because when you think about having a baby, like most people picture like the warm and fuzzy feelings, right? Yeah. Like little onesies and like all these things. But, you know, we're talking about like lawyers and NDAs and all that. Yep. And I'm like, that is the least sexy thing we've heard today. <laughs> like, this is not cute. This is not full of like Mickey Mouse pictures. Like, yeah. And it's not what one expects. Um, of the people I know who have gone through things like surrogacy, um, they do still go through traditional like baby milestone things like baby showers and nursery building and mm -hmm. all that stuff. Do you guys plan to do any of that? Yeah, that we common? do. Yeah, we we really do. I think it will make the process more um, compassionate and it will make it more real, I think. And uh, I think that, you know, I still, though, feel very weird, even though we're going to do this, I feel kind of weird saying that we're going to do it. You know, I'm going to sit there, maybe in a chair or maybe among friends, and I'm going to have a flat belly and I'm not going to look pregnant. And there's going to be this other person who may or not may or may not be at the at the party who will be carrying my child. And again, reconciling that is, is strange. And so I feel kind of odd saying, yes, we're going to go through those milestones, but I think it's really important that we do. I think it's important that we normalize this process as much as we can for, for us as a couple, um, as we build our family. And so we do want to do all those same things. Yeah. And as more of these conversations happen, I think that picture of pregnancy will also change to include 
like you said, like someone else who has the baby bump, but you're the, you know, you're going to be the mom um, or just in lots of different family situations as women, like you said, wait longer to have kids. And hopefully we start, instead of telling women to have a baby tomorrow, start educating them on freezing their eggs and making that more accessible Mm -hmm. and easy to understand because my my husband's family actually has family like down in Tennessee and more in like the traditional South Mm -hmm. up here. Me, all of my friends, I'm the only married one. All of my friends are dating or single in no rush to get married. But we have some friends I grew up more down in the South that we know are family members. And like you said, the culture is you're 22, get a ring on your finger, pop out some babies. And I worked in pediatrics and I had plenty of moms who were younger than me. They were 24, 25 and had like two or three kids already. And I was like, whoa, what is happening right now? And like, I wouldn't put it together until I would like talk to them. And I'm like, how old are you? <laughs> you know, we're sitting there like talking about TikTok, and I'm like, wait a second, you have three kids, and it's very like you said, like the emotions there are very strange because obviously in my head, I also have that like biological clock thing going, and the idea of like, what is that one day gonna look like? I don't know, mm-hmm. but mind you, there's this other woman who has this whole other experience of just like life and parenting and expectations that they went through and it's really like I'm at like a really bizarre age where like people have kids and then there's the Mm -hmm. people who don't or they're not even in a relationship that they would consider having kids Um, but for you because you did wait a bit longer did you feel like there was more and more pressure as you got older even though I know you obviously you knew you couldn't have children but mm-hmm. this family planning or this settling down pressure did you oh, yeah. feel like there was a ton of it as you got older oh yeah absolutely and I think you know interestingly I put some of that pressure on myself um, because I was looking at other people and of my friends I was one of the last to get married um, and you know I I you know, it's so easy. You look on Facebook, you look at the next, oh, I'm pregnant. Here's my ultrasound and all of that. And I kept thinking in my head, like, why don't I not want this? But I really, and I, when I think back about my childhood, I now understand why I didn't want it. But I, I just, I just wasn't willing to settle. You know, I made a lot of mistakes dating guys, but I ended up eventually coming out of those relationships and I never settled for what was not right for me. And I just found my person later. I I had a lot of stuff to go through to figure out who I was based on some things that happened in childhood. And it just took me longer. It was just one of those things that took me longer. But I feel so comfortable that I, even if it was 39 when I got married, I married the right person. I married the person, my person. Um, But the pressure was there. I remember um, a week after graduating college, I was 22. My dad and my whole family, we went out to a Mexican restaurant. And I remember this very vividly. And my dad was like, okay, what do you think about getting married? And I was like, I am 22. I have no idea what I'm doing. And you want me to get married. But my mom would be like, well, there's a prime age. And then you can like, you can go do whatever you want. You can continue studying. You can do whatever you want after you get married. But everybody needs a person. And You have to think about having a family. And in my head, I'm thinking, I don't even know if I want any of those things. So I I, I just really would resent those conversations because 
I felt like, do you even know who I am? Like, do you know what I need and I want? Um, and it felt like, oh, well, marriage is going to solve everything. And what ended up happening, interestingly, Misha, is that because I got that, you know, that sort of record playing in my head, oh, marriage, you can do whatever you want after marriage. I became very um, silly and, and just sort of, I, I started dating the wrong guys, thinking that like, I was so fed up of this dynamic and my strained relationship with my parents that I kind of just, whoever liked me, I was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. And like my self-esteem was not great. And I was just making these wrong choices thinking like, I don't want to get married, but if I get married, I'll get away from this relationship and this strained relationship and this, the toxicness that is happening with my parents. But yet I'm making these bad decisions and I'm dating guys that are not really worth my time or, and I could do better. And so it became this like really toxic cycle of yeah. doing the wrong thing, but listening to this bad message coming from my parents and trying to get out of trying to find a way to get married because I'm now going to, because all my problems are going to be solved, but yet I don't want to get married. <laughs> like it was mm -hmm. just very, very weird and very fucked up, but it was this weird cycle I went into. And, and I really now part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast is because I want to say that out loud. And I want women to know that marriage or coupling, like that is not the answer to your issues and to, to things like that. That is the wrong. That's like, you know, when we say, you know, we, we balk at this idea of, Oh, I'm going to have kids to solve my marriage, you know, my marital problems or my own problems. We very easily are like, that sounds ridiculous, but we don't really say that about relationships, whether it's marriage or, you know, common law marriage or just being in a long-term relationship but yet we get these messages and you know and sorry I don't even know how to say it it just it just doesn't work but yet yeah. they become ingrained in our body and we start making these subconscious decisions that are so wrong for us a hundred percent a hundred percent because as someone who works at peds I mean there are multiple days a week where you know I have little little ones come in and I'm like sitting there with the parents and I'm like, oh, you had kids because you thought it would solve your problems. And that's why we're here. Got it. Cool. Yeah. And it's like, you know, because we're told like if you go to college, you get this degree, you're going to get a great job. You're going to be happy. If you get married, you're going to be happy. Once you yeah. have kids, you're going to be happy. And there's a lot of people that most of us bought into that and kind of tripped over ourselves trying to figure out where happy is or like, oh, when am I going to be happy? And like you said, in South Asian culture, this idea of the irony is that marriage is freedom, right, for a lot yeah. of women. And this is also very almost like mirrors like 1960s America when I talk to like my husband's side of the family where they're like, you got married because you had a terrible relationship with your parents. And if you wanted to be able to go out and do stuff and live your life and decide when to do things, you got yeah. married. As soon as you got married, you were free from your father. You were free from your parents. Yep. And you could live the life you want. And we, you know, South Asian culture still very much sells that. And yep. again, I think it takes that extra generation to like push it to the curb. Like we will not do that to our kids. But the idea still remains because even when I was dating and whatever I was dating a lot of idiots on the side and I hit a point where I was dating Michael and I'm like am I just doing this to make my parents mad like mm -hmm. am I just like doing this because like 
it's one it's a like a control thing right like i'm making this decision yeah. you don't get to tell me what to do luckily we worked through that it's not why i married the man but <laughs> i had to like pause and think like what's happening here yeah. you know and even hitting a point in my relationship with michael feeling like are we talking about marriage because my parents keep bringing it up and the only way to get this to stop is for me to bring you home tell them you're my boyfriend so they'll back off and there are definitely times where I'm like, what would have happened if we waited? What if we waited till I was, because I, I got married when I was 25, like I was basically a fetus and love him. Glad I did it. But I definitely had to pause and think like within the last year, I'm like, do you think we would have still gotten married if we waited and we didn't get married because I felt like maybe my parents were pushing it fast mm-hmm. long? Mm-hmm. Again, we have worked through and we're like, no, we're good. Everything's fine. But it's like I never got to have those thoughts or ideas or discussions until after I got married. And my parents don't give a shit what I do or where I go or who I'm yeah. with Yeah, because my husband said it's okay. Yeah. And I'm like, this is everything about this is broken. <laughs> I feel all of this is wrong. No, that's, you know, um, I, I wish I had sort of your insight at that age. I, I definitely did not. And I questioned the same things. You know, was I meeting people for the wrong reasons because I was trying to piss my parents off? Because that's what my parents thought. They would openly say to me, you're doing this out of spite. And I really, I still can't answer if I was. Maybe subconsciously I was, but I was just kind of going with the flow. And I also had really poor self-esteem. And so I felt like that was what I needed to do. And it wasn't, and when I look back, I don't really think it was despite them. It was just where I was as a person at that time. Yeah. I think as I get I get older, I realize that because I'm also at an age where I can see the people around me making mistakes. Yeah. And you see, because I have younger cousins who are basically Gen Z, they're like babies. And, you know, they talk about their friends and, oh, this girl's dating this guy and everybody hates him, but she doesn't see it. And, you know, you, you I hang out with them and I see them and I'm like, see, you're in that phase in life where you have to watch your friends make mistakes and let it happen because nothing you say is going to make any difference. Yeah. And if they if they're like one of your really close friends and maybe you do have the space to tell them like, this is questionable but then you might also see some of them put a ring on their finger and start deciding to walk down the aisle with that person that everyone else in the room knows is not the right person right. that everyone else is like this is not it or that we don't like him or this isn't gonna last and i'm like this is you're at that age yeah. just until you work through all of that crap and i'm not saying i've worked through all of it but like you see it, like looking back, it's like you see this happening and how much it impacts the younger folks who either are listening to this podcast or just people that we know that it's like you have to do all of the work first. It doesn't matter yeah. how long it takes. Yeah. It doesn't matter how you do it. Listen, I understand therapy is not for everyone. I get it. All right. I don't want to go to therapy and talk about how fucking sad my life was. I don't give a shit. I am who I am. Take it or leave it. I'm not going to suddenly become like little miss empathetic, like hugs bears for a living. Like, no, I don't want to do that. But it's like, I know who I am now and I don't, I know why I am the way I am. Mm -hmm. And makes you a little more conscious of your decisions. Yeah. That's all. 
And I, I think that sort of speaks to the one of the other things that you and I had talked about with me talking about the role of communication from our parents. I think, you know, putting the language barrier aside, I, I really wish that my parents, so my parents would tell me things that they disagreed with in a very harsh way, using words that were inappropriate, saying very hurtful things. And I think about, you know, would I have done things differently if I had had more trust with them? If I could trust that they would, you know, tell, you know, when you, when your child gets to a certain age, you can't treat them like that 16 year old or five year old that you used to treat them. And South Asian parents have this theory that you are our child until we die and, or until you are given to another man, but we are, you know, we, we rule, like we, what we say, that's what goes. That is our role as a parent. That's what my parents have literally said to me. It is our job to tell you what is right or wrong, but you do have to accept that your own, that your child becomes an adult at a certain age and has experiences. So had my parents sat down with me potentially and said, Hey, you know, I think this could be different, or I think like, this is how I feel about this. How do you feel about it? Are you seeing the things that we're seeing about X guy or this decision? I might've listened, but if everything is going to come out with this drama and harshness and you've destroyed our reputation yes. and all or nothing. You, yes. And so you either live under my house or you don't. Right. Yeah. So then how do you, how do you then guide your children? If it's going to be always that black or white, my way or the highway, which is so common in South Asian or even East Asian households, how do you then bond with your child and help guide them in the way that you want them to, or the way that you think will help them when you're treating every single thing with like, you know, level 100, you know, response, everything is, you know, do or die. You, yeah. you can't have that kind of relationship then. Your kids are then going to say, yeah, screw you. I'm going to do my own thing. And then they're going to make more mistakes. Yeah. And like, they're going to do it, right? Like, I like Mike and I always talk about how differently we were raised because like he had like typical suburban American parents. Like my husband is like the chillest, like everything's <laughs> positive all the time. And I'm like this right. anxious cucumber that he made. Right. <laughs> and he's like, you know, now he's at this age where like he's like friends with his parents, you know, he goes mm-hmm. to his parents when he needs advice or wants to. Yeah. But he also has like very adult conversations with his parents, yeah. like differing views on maybe politics or on what's going on in the world or in his life, you know. And with my parents, it's like this very like infantilized, like you just have never stopped treating me like anything besides a 16 year old girl. And it's unfortunate because now I think about like, how is that going to impact me trying to be a parent? And like, luckily, I think I have something on my side being in the pediatric world. Like, all right, I understand babies. I got it. Like, I know how to talk to them. I know how to work through this stuff. But just like as a general, like as a parent, I'm like, I don't want to do those things to my kids. I don't want them to turn out like I did. But at the same time, like, how am I supposed to stop that? Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that actually has been pretty triggering as we've gone down our, our journey in in family building has been this very thing that you talked about was, you know, how do I really separate those unhealthy things that I learned? Because 
the reality is, is even though when we try to break intergenerational trauma, we still have to really be mindful of who we are as a person, because some of those bad habits just get ingrained in you. And you catch yourself in moments of stress or in moments of challenge being like, oh, whoa, I need to, I'm acting like my mom or I'm acting like my dad. Um, and so I really got anxious and I'm working through this in therapy about how am I going to really be that a little bit more objective and really break that trauma and say, okay, I, I'm not going to repeat these things. Um, and I think a lot of that, it also helps having a husband very similar to yours who really is has a very positive view on things and is just like we're just going to figure it out. We're going to yeah. talk about it. We're going to be fine. Yeah, it'll be fine. Um and so, you know, but for me and and maybe for you, for me at least that has been very comforting. I need that other person to check me and be like, "Look, let's slow down. Let's pull back a little bit. Let's think about this critically and not, you know, jump to conclusions." Yeah, and it's hard cuz, you know, there are times where I'm like, I don't have to constantly feel like shit about myself. Like, I get it. I get it. Like, growing up as an immigrant's kid, it's like hot mess express. Right. But at the same time, it's like you can also just accept like that, like there are parts of who you are that are just that's it. Like, that's OK. Like, am I hyper independent? Absolutely. Don't feel bad about it. Just who I am. Do I have a hard time empathizing with people who maybe constantly ask for help? Absolutely. Like where I'm like, can't you just figure it out? I don't understand right. why you can't figure this out. <laughs> you know, like when I'm at work and some people are like, I just like don't know how to handle this kid. I'm like, why? <laughs> like, that's it. That's all I got. You know, but it's like, whatever. Like, that's just who I am. I'm going to figure it out. That's how I work through things like whatever. Yep. But then there's definitely those times where you feel like you're I catch myself acting like my mom. And I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. no, we can't do that. Yeah. This is uncomfortable, you know, like, like you said, our parents being all or nothing. And my friends and I were actually talking about this because we're all like in our late 20s. And one of them was like, you know, I realized my parents were always very all or nothing. And she's, she's pretty American, but she's like culturally Lebanese. And so she did have a little bit of that like, Eastern European thing going. And she was like, my parents were always very all or nothing. And that's why I had this like terrible relationship with my parents at times and she's like you know I noticed it when I was dating like if a guy couldn't accept something about me it was well then get out well we don't have to do mm. that we can just break up now like it wasn't like oh maybe we can like talk about it or like maybe it's not that big of a deal but it's like I realize like those all or nothing responses are how I respond to things because that's what my parents did. I'm like, yeah, we're all fucked. It's fine. Whatever. <laughs> like, we're all just sitting there like, let's talk about how all of our parents screwed us up. That's really interesting because I took the complete opposite view and became a, like a complete people pleaser. So if someone said, you know, I don't like this thing, I'm like, okay, I'll change it. I'll do whatever you want me to do to you so that you can accept me. And I think that goes back to this feeling of because everything was all or nothing, I felt inadequate a lot of times. And I really wanted to prove to my parents that I'm a good person. I, I may make decisions that you don't like, but I'm a good person. And I, I and that's where my self-esteem took a huge hit. But I became very codependent and very much a people pleaser and telling you exactly what you want to hear, not really what was authentically me. 
Um, so that's really interesting that your friend was very much all or nothing. And I was just the complete opposite. I just took yeah. a totally different approach. I was also all or nothing. That's how we got on that. Topic. <laughs> um, but do you have any, cause like we're sitting here talking about all these things about us that we notice um, for people that are kind of just getting into this kind of like self discovery situation. Um, do you have any advice or like tactics that helped you kind of work through all that stuff? Um, you know, I, I actually think that the one thing I regret, and I don't really know yet how I could have done this, but I really wish that some of the resources that we have now through like people like Glennon Doyle, Brene Brown, people who talk about vulnerability and being authentically us, I wish I would have had that confidence. And I, I post and answer a lot of questions on, um, uh, on a Facebook group called SAWIR. So it's South Asian women and, you know, interracial relationships or things like that. And the one thing I always say again and again is that I wish I would have had the confidence to say, you know what, I am not going to become codependent and tied into what my family thinks. I am not going to look for validation. And I think unfortunately, so many South Asian women are looking for validation when they do something that goes against their families, you know, value system, um, even if it's wrong. And I really wish that I would have had the ability to gain that confidence either through therapy earlier in my life or self-help books or podcasts or whatever it would that would take me to help me be unapologetically myself. Because I have seen that those children of immigrants who are able to do that, you know, you just stand up for what you believe in. And yes, it's hurtful and it feels hard, but they just seemed, and I, I could be being Pollyannish about this, but it seemed like they were able to cope better when they went against their parents. Whereas I was constantly seeking for validation and my I wasted so much time being significantly anxious and upset and crying and codependent on friendships and 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 relationships that I I felt like I wasted a lot of time. I really, I don't know how I would have done it, but I wanted to have more confidence in myself. I wanted like my own hype team to kind of just tell me that I'm still a good person, but I fell down this rabbit hole of I'm a terrible person and I made decisions and I harmed, you know, myself and I got depressed and I did things that really did not help me come out of that rabbit hole at all. It really pushed me further and further down. And and maybe that meant cutting off my family for a period of time. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I just wish that other women, other South Asian women, or anyone who feels like their family is, you know, all or nothing, can really step out of that and really critically look at themselves and validate themselves through other ways. And realize that they are not a bad person for the choices that they make. Um, I wish I knew how to do that, but that would be my one takeaway. That's something I wish I would have done. Yeah, that's definitely one thing I say a lot on this podcast is like, it's more important for young women to have a extremely strong group of female friends yeah. than it is to have a boyfriend or a partner or significant other. Like, 
they will come and go and that's all good for them. But like your friends being there to hype you up and remind you of like your own self-worth, but also calling you out when you're being a little bit much Mm -hmm. is all so much more important because, you know, I always say like, again, like things we were recently talking about with my girlfriends, we were like, since I'm the only married one, I was like, you know, if God forbid, Michael and someone's going to listen to this podcast and be like, these two are on the rocks. We're fine, guys. (laughs) The amount of times I've brought up me and Michael not being together. We're fine, guys. But, you know, I was like, if God forbid something happened to Michael and he decided this isn't for him, I was like, honestly, guys, I think we would just all buy a house together and like be neighbors and live our best lives. Like, obviously, Mm -hmm. I'd be devastated, but like, it would be okay. Like, because I'm like, as much as I love my husband, I don't rely on him for everything. Like, Mm -hmm. there are things where I'm like, I need this person for this, or I need this girlfriend for that. And that's what we were talking about. I was like, I wanted to have a Harry Potter marathon. My husband would rather die. And (laughs) so, of course, I like two of them who love Harry Potter. I'm like, can we like hang out in pajamas and watch Harry Potter and like eat like shit? Because God forbid, God forbid we ate a French fry out in public with my husband like love him but like things that like he's just not gonna do and I'm like I would like to sit on the couch and do nothing today eat like shit and watch Harry Potter can we just agree that's what we're doing today and it's we were talking about how like I'm so happy I have you guys to do these kinds of things with so that I don't have to sit there and be like why isn't my husband doing this with me it's like he wants to go on a run and thinks it's fun and I'm like that's cool like you do you yeah and it's like we can just be like fulfilled in other parts of our lives without just having that one person. Yeah. It's really interesting that you say that. I um, I recently, well, I do things all the time without my husband. I go see my girlfriends. I do whatever. And my parents are just like, you didn't take Nathan with you? And <laughs> are I was you getting like, divorced? I are there problems? <laughs> you didn't bring him? <laughs> yeah. I recently went home for the first time in my marriage since we were married by myself because that's what I wanted to do. And my husband wanted to stay here and catch up like he had an extra day off and he was just really exhausted and just wanted some downtime. And we were totally fine with that. It was like a whole to do with my parents. Is he going to be okay? Are you guys okay? And, you know, honestly, those are like what you just said, that that is that rings so true. You need to know who you are before you get involved with someone else. And then you need to maintain who you are in that marriage or in that relationship. And you can't do that. You can't find yourself by getting under other people. You need to spend that time on your own. You need to, like you said, have those girlfriends and that hype team on your own to figure out who you are solidly because you cannot be a good partner to anybody else if you are not good to yourself. And it took me a long time to figure that out. But once I figured that out, I noticed that the quality of men in my life were different. I noticed that my friendships were different. I noticed that I was happier. And I continue to maintain a certain level of independence from him in our marriage because I need to do that. I don't want to be codependent on him watching traditional gender roles that I watched growing up. I don't want that. If he wants to cook more, great. If I want to clean less, fine. It doesn't matter. Our our relationship and who we are together matters. But after all that, those are all details. I don't yeah. need to fit into those gender roles. Yeah. And like defining that and being okay with it, right? Like, if you're listening to the show and like that is what you want, like fine. Yep. Great. Do that. Chase that. You, you know, live your best life. But like you have to be comfortable with that and not let somebody else make the decision yes. for you. Yes. 
All right. Well, the last question I always ask all of my guests is if you could leave our audience with a message or one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, you know, after everything we've talked about, I, I kind of have to reiterate what you said. I would, I really want women out there to be, to really, you know, of course, if you have a dream of settling down at a certain age or having something by a certain age, that's more traditional. Great. You do you, but I really want women, especially South Asian women to get away from this idea that they need to fulfill certain milestones by a certain age. I, I really encourage going out, educating yourself, being financially smart, being financially independent, being emotionally savvy and having emotional IQ and being critically thoughtful about who you are and really building a foundation for yourself as a person first before you go around, you know, go next and try to get into relationships. I think we think we're going to grow through relationships but I think, like I said, and kind of what you said, too, is you have to grow on your own first. And for me, it was really important for me to grow as a physician and really make something out of myself before I could really settle down in that traditional way and have children. I needed to feel good about who I was. And I wish it would have you know, taken me a little less time, but I'm so glad I got there instead of never getting there at all. And so I guess I just want women to remember to take care of themselves and find themselves or at least build a foundation for themselves that's independent and rooted in, in growth and self-confidence before they go out and, and try to find that in someone else. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Make sure if you enjoyed this episode, you leave us a review on iTunes. You can find the show on all major streaming platforms. You can find me on Instagram at Disha.Mazeppa. You can shop my Etsy shop, Disha Mazeppa Designs. Find out everything you want to know about this show at DishaMazeppa.com. And if you or someone you know would like to be a guest, you can email podcast at gmail.com. And I'll see you guys next time. Bye. This podcast is hosted and produced by Disha Mystery Mazeppa. Music for the show was created by Crexwell. Mm-hmm.